Kia and welcome to episode 99 of The Staggerer. This episode I'm joined by top leader Jeff Simmons. We talk about the relaunch of Top, the new brand, Just Top, not the Opportunities Party anymore, Just Top, and what they're all about uh, next year's New Zealand elections. Um, quite a good insight into some of the considerations and things that are facing New Zealand, probably similar to those that are around the world, and a new sort of pragmatic approach to what uh, top things could change the way this country is run and also um, around how we think about our economy uh, and drive it forward into the 2020s. Yeah, uh, cool chat with Jeff, great guy and um, really enjoy what top's about. It's quite casual, um, quite abrupt as well. It's confronting, it's cool, different way of thinking and yeah, enjoy this podcast with Jeff Simmons. Good everybody. I have the honour of speaking with Jeff Simmons today. Jeff, you're the leader of the Opportunities Party, and you guys have relaunched, isn't that right? Yeah, you can just call us Top now. Yeah, <laughs> that awesome. makes it easier. Oh, Kia Ryan. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you decided, you guys decided to go another round. Uh, not done with yet. Absolutely. Um, you know, we the whole point of the relaunch is to show a, a clear break with 2017 and present a, a, a brand and um, and public face that's more uh, aligned with our, our policies and values. Um, you know, we we really are the party of of young people and those who want um, who want real change, fundamental change. And so that was the thinking behind the behind the rebrand to actually um, you know get that across to people. Um, in ways other than uh, through our policies, because you know policies kind of speak to the head, but but you know branding and imagery and and the way we talk is what speaks to the heart. Absolutely. So I went on to the website, and uh, the header is confronting. Uh, who? Where was the decision to put into put some profanities up on there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, um, it's it's. Uh, you know that, that that's all part of the 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 new brand and and look and feel. You know, um, like I said, we're we're angling for people who are interested in in fundamental change, who are prepared to challenge the status quo, and um, and those kinds of people are are uh, you know pissed off <laughs> with the uh, with with the status quo and and the kind of tinkering around the edges approach that we have so um you know what we're trying to do is is tap into that sense of of um frustration and but also provide a sense of hope that things can be different um and i think you know to to make sure that we don't account don't come across like a, a you know a bunch of um you know Earnest progressives, um, we we've thrown in a dash of humour too because we think you know that's that's really what's going to help um, get our get our message across, help people think differently about about the status quo. So it's those three things together that um, that that really make up the um, the emotional side of, of what we're trying to do. You you brought up that uh, term earnest progressives. Uh, I sort of see top as more of a pragmatic approach, whereas mm. progressive has developed a new and, and quite sort of scary name to it 
but or association to it where nothing's good enough and it's a race to cut everybody else off would would you say that oh, i mean i i would i would agree that that's um that that's what i mean about uh you know being a being a bunch of earnest progressives that's that's kind of where that um you know where where that movement has gone in in, in recent years um and yeah i mean we we think the, the the country can be better, um, but but yeah, we we need to be pragmatic about it. Um, I mean, in in many ways, you know, when I'm talking to to, to business audiences and in, in, in particular, or um, you know, groups of small business or that sort of thing, the way I try to describe top is is uh, you know because people can see that um, what's happening in you know, with Trump and Brexit, those sorts of things. I mean, that's not good for anyone. Um, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the rise of the of, of the populist, and um, you know, every, everyone's getting hurt by that. Businesses getting hurt by that. Poor people, in particular, are, are the ones who who get hurt by that. And it's a matter of saying, well, <clears throat> you know, changes changes coming. Let's be let's be progressive and front foot that, um, but not. Um, you know, otherwise, this is what you'll get. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's that's the approach that that I take with it. Anyway, you know, you can you can either have, um, you know, you can you can either have, um, you know, radical now, or you can get extreme later on when you don't take care of these fundamental issues. Mm. Yeah, no, and I guess that's probably why we we are working at one end of the spectrum as in government, and the other end of the spectrums. Um, screaming and, and yelling for help and, and reason, whereas um, when you say take a pragmatic approach, you can sort of add a bit of nuance to the conversation, see where everyone's coming from, and, and find a like say something that works for the pop for most people rather than yeah. the people with the loudest voice. Mate, um, yeah. you, you said you're sort of trying to address the frustration in, in the year, and, and one of those things is that there's so many people out there, especially my age. Um, I managed to actually fill in my voting papers for the for the local electorate. So you know, the next step is to put it in the post. But Congratulations. <laughs> something like uh, 40% of voted turnout. out. Like, you know, do, yeah. do you sort of sympathise with the people that sort of think, oh, well, you know, nobody's voting, so I'm not making a difference. But really, it's the other <laughs> way around, isn't it? Um, if you do vote, your vote carries more weight. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If, if you know, when, when no one is voting, you do have much a much greater say. I mean, I can, I definitely can, um, I do have some sympathy for people that have disengaged from politics because politics hasn't delivered for decades now. Uh, we've just, like I said before, we've sort of seen tinkering around the edges. Um, you know, politicians who've made careers out of looking like they're going to do something about a problem without actually doing anything about it. Um, and that 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 has led to that sense of frustration I mentioned before when we're talking about you know people switching off and and and, and disengaging. So yeah, I totally can see where they're coming from in checking out of the system entirely and not wanting to have anything to do with it. And that's that's really what um, that new branding I, I mentioned is is trying to is trying to tap into. They're trying to re-engage those people. Um, say, look, we understand your frustration. We understand why you think politics is shit because it has been shit, um, but it doesn't need to be shit. 
we can do things differently. And if we do do things differently, then, then there is hope. And if we look overseas, you can see examples, you know, there's no Nirvana overseas, but in a number of countries, you can see examples of where certain things are done better than they're done here. And, that, and that's what we have to draw upon to show people that things can actually be different if we put our minds to it. Uh, so what, what are some of the examples of that? Well, you know, one of the big ones, of course, is around housing and taxation is something that we've talked about a lot uh, as a political party. And, you know, New Zealand has the most favourable tax system for housing in the world. We have more of our assets sunk into housing than any other country in the world. And we have some of the most unaffordable housing in the world. So it's kind of that kind of trifecta is not too hard to um, see why it is the way it is. When you look overseas, there's um, two broad ways of, of solving that issue. Um, in some countries, what they do is they tax housing the same as all other assets, particularly retirement income, because for most people, your, your house and your retirement income are your two major lifetime assets. In New Zealand, most people, it's all housing and, and your you know, in the past, your your version of KiwiSaver has been almost non-existent because we, we just haven't um, had a retirement savings scheme up until very recently. Um, so most countries in the world will do one or two things. They'll say, okay, we'll, we'll either uh, tax housing at the same rate as we tax other forms of investment. So there's no, um, you know, no disincentive to... Uh, no incentive to invest in housing in terms of tax treatment and there's no disincentive to invest in other investments and that broadly speaking is one way of solving the problem um, it means that you can bring in a lot more money because you're you know you're taxing housing and it means you can reduce other forms of taxation mm. of course uh, you know politically uh, in New Zealand that's a difficult story because that would mean a conversation about taxing owner-occupied housing in, in particular. And, you know, you could talk about having some thresholds for that, but if you don't tax any owner-occupied housing, I mean, that's half the wealth in the country will go untaxed. Um, and, you know, if you look at the countries that do that sort of thing, like Australia, where they they put it that you know they've got a capital gains tax excluding the family home um and that just means people invest more in the family home because it actually increases the tax differential between the family home and all other assets so you get what they call the mansion effect which means you, you know you, you double down on putting all your money into the family home so that's that's one approach that you see some countries do um the other approach is to say well okay um, if we're not going to tax housing, then we won't tax retirement income either. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that kind of at least equalises that from that perspective. Um, it's, uh, it, so it means the choice between putting your money into a house and putting your money into retirement savings, like, like your KiwiSaver basically, is, is removed uh, from a, you know, at least the tax part of it's removed. 
And so people are more likely to invest in, in, in KiwiSaver in those countries. And therefore, you know, if you put your money into KiwiSaver, that most of that money ends up in businesses in some form. So you get more people investing in the economy, creating jobs and exports and, and all that sort of stuff, and less money going into housing speculation. So two broad different ways of dealing with that problem that you can see if you look around the world. Um, the advantage of taxing housing, this is why we favor it rather than, uh, you know, the same as other assets is because it's, it's much better for equity. Uh, you know, it reduces wealth inequality large, you know, by a huge amount. If you exempt KiwiSaver the same as you exempt the family home, that actually means that your, your inequality rises because it's giving people a tax-free place to invest and it means that rich people are going to get richer. Um, so in countries like that, that's why you see um, places like the Scandinavian countries having very high um, taxes on, you know, progressive taxes on income. Um, that That's, you know, because that, that's to try and keep the wealth inequality down because they don't, you know, they don't tax KiwiSaver basically at, at all. Um, so that, you know, it... You, you, if, if you are going to tax exempt KiwiSaver, then you have to, uh, you know, uh, you have to offset that somehow in terms of inequality. Um, so that's a problem that our proposal avoids because if we just tax housing the same as all other assets, it's incredibly progressive, um, raises a lot of money, means we can reduce all other income taxes, and encourages people to invest in in businesses rather than speculate on housing. Yeah, and as someone who, you know, had a house and went to Australia for a year and dealt with all that rental market stuff and, and have sold it because now we don't live there anymore, um, we now live in Hawke's Bay, and then it comes to the rental market and when you're paying more to rent than you are to own a house, it it's sort of, you know, if you feel a little bit, little bit off and like I was telling my mum the other day, you know, how much we're spending on rent, you say, oh, wouldn't that be great if you're putting it into a mortgage and yeah, that would be great. But the, we've, like you said, we've sort of gamified the housing market and, and I see yeah. that, that new new ability for people to get into a house at 5% deposit at $400,000 cap means that, you know, minimum house for a uh, minimum price for a house is 400K. The next step up is going to be, well, probably 500 or high 400s. And we, as you said, we just keep pushing that up, pushing that up. We, we gamify our own housing market. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, most of the things that the governments that, that recent governments have done to, to so-called improve the affordability of housing um, have actually made housing more unaffordable. <laughs> there have been taxpayer subsidies for for property owners, basically. And uh, but it, again, it looks like they're doing something for for young people when actually what they're really doing is lining the pockets of baby boomers who have put all their money into housing. <laughs> yeah, and, so, and also it means that they're going back to investing in business. That means they're cash strapped to a thirty-year mortgage, and um, you know when it and this is part of my thinking when it comes to the investing in the business, it's like, well, shit, where the hell do I get capital from? Because I've had it all in a mortgage, or I'm not liquid, and you know all that sort of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and people when, you know, when small business owners, you know, hear about our, our, our ideas that they say, well, but I've, I've used my house to, to mm -hmm. bankroll my business to, you know, to underwrite 
setting up my businesses. Like you, you know, what what are you going to do about that? And I'm like, well, that's the point. Our whole economy has been based on housing. Even our business sector has been based on housing. Um, and we're, we're trying to break that. Uh, we're, we're trying to break that link uh, completely so that, so that there is more money available for actually investing in business. Um, because that's the stuff that actually makes us richer. I mean, there's, there's, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Piketty, he's a French oh. economist. No, okay. <laughs> he wrote the, um, he wrote the, the book Capital, which was big a few years ago, um, in terms of, uh, which basically said, you know, the rich get richer, um, which is, uh, you know, true to, you know, true to uh, a large extent, but there's been a lot of work following on from that. And actually what they've found is that the, the countries that encourage um, investment in property as, a, as opposed to investment in business, uh, while they look as rich, those, those are the countries, generally speaking, with much greater income, you know, wealth inequality because you, you, you're getting richer at someone else's expense. Whereas if you, if you invest in business, that really does rise the tide for all boats because you provide, you know, businesses provide jobs and exports and, and all that sort of stuff. So you've got a much, much bigger chance of having, um, you know, of having a, a fairer economy. So yeah, there's, there's quite a big difference between, between the countries that, you know, encourage housing speculation and the countries that encourage business investment. So do we have a bit of a cash problem in New Zealand? I was talking to my brother the other day, he works for Sinlays, of course he would say this, but he was talking about Ontario being at like 48% credit or something like that. Do we have a cash problem over here? You know, and that's part of the issue, and we'll get onto agriculture, but part of the issue with agriculture is there's um, a lot of wealth around, but not, not enough to, uh, nothing to spend. Is that would you say? Well, I mean, that's a, a whole, um, you know, whole other can of worms, but it does, it also comes back to our tax system and that the best way to make money in New Zealand is through tax free capital gain for, you know, particularly for, for farmers. That's how they've made money in, in recent years. So the whole agricultural model is based around pushing up land prices rather than actually making money from selling meat and milk and wool and crops or whatever it is that you're that you're growing the whole agricultural sector has been set up around that and fonterra uh is a is another example that that's been set up to enable that i mean there's good reasons for having a cooperative there's good reasons for you know if you if you're producing a perishable good like milk there's good reasons for having a, a cooperative that can you know, make sure that you don't get ripped off because um, if it was just a private sector, you know, if someone turns up to pick up your milk, they'll say, well, we'll take it off your hands, but by the way, we're cutting the price in half, um, <laughs> you know, and, and the farm would be over a barrel, right? So mm -hmm. th there's, there's reasons for having these things, but the way that Fonterra got set up and farmers are very resistant to changing this, the way that Fonterra got set up basically says, right, we will make sure that the maximum amount of money 
goes to paying farmers for the milk. Which sounds fine as a, as a concept, but Fonterra was sold to us New Zealanders. You know, we, we set up a monopoly, which is not good for us Kiwis, right? Um, mm. In terms of having a, a competitive price for milk, you know, that's one alongside the supermarkets. That's why, you know, people say, gosh, milk's more expensive here than Australia. Well, you know, that's, that's one reason why. But the reason that we the reason that we agreed as a country to allow farmers this monopoly was so that um, look at the story they sold us was that we're going to create all this wealth and we're going to invest it in value add and Fonterra is going to become the next Nestle and and whatever um, and it hasn't happened and that's because the way Fonterra was set up was to make sure that the maximum amount of money goes to farmers each and every year so Fonterra has never really been able to accumulate the kinds of reserves to invest in research and development or invest in new markets so they they've stayed this commodity you know producer and to do anything Fonterra has had to take on debt which which is why they're so in debt and when you look at their balance sheet um you know, most of the investments they've got themselves into have come through debt. And that works if the investment turns out to be good. But on average, most of their most of their investments have turned out to be pretty average. So really they ha they 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 haven't been able to cover much more than the um you know than than the cost of that debt. So yeah, I mean Fonterra basically has been a failure. You know, compared to what we were promised when it was when it was set up, there hasn't been investment in new products or new markets. We're still mostly exporting milk powder to to China, and um, you know, and and Fonterra is heavily indebted as a as a result. What who has done well out of Fonterra is farmers, because <clears throat> all of the um, all of the uh, money has been going back to farmers to pay for milk. That all ends up getting capitalized into land prices um, and farmers can sell their farms at, at, uh, for, for tax-free capital gain. So we don't, you know, we don't see them making lots of money through selling, um, you know, wonderful products, but we do get them. We, we do, they, they basically make their money when they retire through tax-free capital gain. <clears throat> and then um, poor sheep milk is slowly buying it off them. <laughs> yeah, still got, a, yeah. still got a bunch of debt. <laughs> well, exactly, and and this is why it's a it's a zero sum game, right? Because you know, getting rich through higher land prices or higher house prices, which is which is what our economy set up to do, someone has to buy that. The next generation has to buy that, and so to to keep yourself rich or to realise the gains, you've you've got to find a buyer. That means someone you've got to shackle someone with debt. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's a, it's a zero sum game at the end of the day, you know, not, it's not like building a business, which actually adds value and, and, you know, creates something that, the, that, that makes people better off. Uh, you're, you're, you're just, um, enslaving, enslaving future generations to pay for your inflated land prices. Yeah, and so I guess that carries us on to 
them paying to fix up the water or or, or something like that um how do we yeah how do we practically go about it when no one's got anything to spend exactly i mean when you've got that high levels of debt it becomes very hard to um i mean you know basically that that's why i referred to the the, the dairy boom in the in the late um you know part of the first uh, decade you know the, the late noughties if you like um the massive dairy boom we had during those years, which, by the way, wasn't just under national, it was under Labour as well. Um, you know, the, the Helen Clark government. Um, I referred to that as New Zealand's version of the GFC because, you know, Canterbury was, Canterbury and bits of Southland and, and bits of the central Waikato the, um, around um, Taupo there yeah. were converted into dairy large tracts of that land was not suitable for dairy and you know we're seeing the impact of that in our water quality now um so the people that tra- that's that converted the land have had huge capital gain they've sold the land they've made their money they're now retired in winton or or christchurch or wherever um Topol maybe you know, you see some of the mansions in those areas that's that, that they've come from dairy money and um, and they've they've actually left land that isn't really suitable for dairy. And now that we've worked it out, now that we've seen the impact on our water quality, now the government has said, um, well, you know, we have to clean up our water. And places like Canterbury that's now coming home to roost because we have to reduce dairy farming or at least the amount of cattle on the land by 80 or 90 percent to return water quality in Canterbury to what it was pre the dairy boom. Who's going to pay for that? You know, are the, are the farmers going to pay in terms of, you know, seeing their land values plummet? Um, you know, hopefully they could find alternative uses for that land that, that won't reduce the, the land values by as much. Um, we cross our fingers and hope for that, but that may or may not turn out to be the case. Or uh, is the government going to pay to to bail them out? Or is the government going to pay to put in, you know, cow sheds everywhere? These Because you can, you know, if you keep cows off the land during winter you know potentially you can reduce some of that that leaching but it, but it's expensive it costs 1500 or 2000 dollars a cow so that's you know that's a couple of billion dollars for canterbury alone given that they've got um a million cows in canterbury so or more, more than a million cows so i, I, I listened to farming show last uh, two weeks ago and that that figure you said per cow they were even talking 250,000 per cow <laughs> So right, even, right. Even more for for barns. Yeah. For, uh, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I, I guess it depends on 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 what kind of tech you're talking about. But yeah, it's not. It doesn't. It doesn't come cheap. So who's again? It comes back to the question: Who's going to pay for this transition? Um, so that's a massive question that the that the government will face over the next five years if we're if we're actually going to meet these freshwater goals and the the big stuff up is that 
these this expensive land that we've you know we've been making money off bidding up the price of land and that's made this transition really bloody hard so we've we've actually shot ourselves in the foot by by focusing on on tax-free capital gain and so do you think that having the the land tax and, and the and the capital gain tax balances that do it does that do you think that directly affects the people that have bought this at a massive debt or it balances out and that forces them to uh, create more tangible income, more cash, as we were talking about before. Yeah, I mean that's the idea of of this um, of of our tax is to is to you know we we don't want to crash the New Zealand economy overnight. We want to you know phase this in um, and so you know so you bring it in over time um, and if you do it over say 10 to 15 years, then prices, land prices could be kept pretty much at a, um, at a flat nominal level. So, you know, you're not, you're not um, getting into negative equity, but kind of the inflation allows the real value of that land to get eroded away at, you know, two or two or 3% per year. And in 10 to 15 years, you can get back to having affordable land prices from a from the perspective of the dairy sector or housing, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, that and and that then encourages you to use that land productively, um, make sure that you're actually getting a return on it rather than simply running things for a you know for the for the sake of capital gain that's that's very much the intent behind uh that that taxation reform yeah and we'll come back to agricultural sector and and the environment but how does that then reflect into the the renting market well obviously renters would be better off overnight if you change the tax system because um what we're saying is that the owners of assets are are undertaxed and the people who are paying PAYE, um, you know, wage and salary and is a a overtaxed. So the 50% of New Zealanders who currently rent would be, uh, would be better off like that with our, with our, um, with our reforms. Um, And when when things are fully implemented over time, of course, you know, um, house prices w- would go through a similar process as what I described with land prices. There, they'd they'd stabilise over a long period and 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 become affordable again. It would it would really make it neutral between whether you owned or whether you rented, uh, mm-hmm. as as it should be. You know, I mean, if you if you want to. If, if you want to own because um, you know you want to you, you want to put down roots in a place that's fine um, if you want to rent because you are young and and might want to go traveling in a couple of years that should be fine too um, I mean it always it, it always kind of bugs me that we have this massive incentive to to, to purchase property in New Zealand and I end up having conversations with friends where where I'm saying to them, well, you know, it probably doesn't make any sense for you to buy a house, but because our tax system tells you to, you might as well. <laughs> I mean, um, it's it, it's it's just a bit nutty that we that we favour that as if the as if the only 
um, way to be a good person is by owning a house. Um, but so that that's that's kind of the you know the the, the one-off effects. But the the really big effect for renting is is a dynamic effect. So you know you get more of an incentive to invest in property, um, invest in not uh, in building new properties, but also making sure that properties are of a higher quality. Because if you want to improve your return on a property, you have to invest in it to get a to get a, a better return back. Um, and uh, the, the other dynamic impact on that is because house prices stop rising off into the sunset, um, you know, rents, rents will stop rising too. And, you know, we can, we can make um, housing in its broader sense, either, you know, to own or to rent, we can make it affordable again. And the benchmark for that is, is, that, is that the cost of housing should be less than 30% of your income. And we are a long way from that right now. You know, for a, a lot of Kiwis are, are a long way from that right now. Um, so that's, that's why housing is the biggest creator of poverty in New Zealand. It, it has, has been for the last 20 years. Um, we actually have pretty good income inequality in, in New Zealand. Um, you know, people are, when you compare incomes in New Zealand to overseas, sure, you know, we're a bit poorer in New Zealand, but that's, that's because our productivity is crap, which, you know, there's a number of reasons for that, including that we put a lot of money into housing. Um, but the, the, the spread of incomes isn't that bad in New Zealand. The real problem is, is that if you, if you own a house, you're way better off. And if you don't, you're stuffed in New Zealand. That's the real cause of, of inequality. Um, what you were saying about how for the renter as well, that it raises the standard of, of what you're paying for. Does it also yeah. mean that as um, an owner of, of rental properties, if you wanted to lower your personal tax, you offset that with some expenses, which would be reinvesting into your asset. Is, is that another way that, that sort of, um, motivates a better standard of living. Yeah, I mean, if you, uh, yeah, if if you want to, um, so if if you are getting a certain, um, if if you're getting a certain, uh, well, it, it it depends. If you if you're getting a certain income, on, I mean, what what the tax does is is it says. If you've got an asset worth a million bucks, that asset has to be paying at least uh, as much tax as a bank deposit. So at the moment, bank deposits are about 3%. Tax on that's about a third, say. So basically 1% of the value of that asset each and every year is, is your tax, right? So if again, if you've got a million dollar asset, about 1% of that is $10,000 per year. So if you are, um, if you, if you have that million dollar asset and you're at the moment, you are only declaring, um, you know, enough income on it to, to pay about $5,000 in tax, then, then we'll say, no, no, you've got to pay at least $10,000 tax on that, on that particular asset. So it gives you that incentive to make sure it's used productively and, and that you get 
um, you know, that, that you get the income required from it to, um, you know, to, to, to pay that return. So land bankers would get hit. You know, if you've got a bit of land that's sitting around that you're not, not using because you're just waiting for the value to go up, uh, you'd have a pretty strong incentive to, uh, to build on it. Um, and there's a quite a big, um, you know, group of people who are effectively land banking because they have underutilized housing. So we know that in the last census, um, I think it's about 8% of houses in Auckland are empty. <laughs> so this is our busiest, um, you know, our, our most in, in demand, um, you know, property market in, in the country. And what's that? One in, one in 12, one in 13 houses are, are actually empty at any point in time. And we're not talking the owners have gone on holiday. We're talking for long periods of time here. So, you know, there's a number of reasons why that might be the case, but a, a lot of that is also, is also land banking, just basically, you know, waiting for the, for the value to, to, to go up um, either, for, either for development or just to, to take the capital gain. Um, and then you've got people like my parents uh, who are in a completely inappropriate house in the centre of Auckland. Um, it's a massive family home with two spare bedrooms and that's actually, you know, we could easily house all of the homeless in Auckland in the homes that we've already got and make sure everyone still had a spare bedroom. That's, that's the, the scale of underutilized housing that we have in, um, in, in New Zealand. So and what well, that's just just in Auckland. So, um, you know, encouraging people to 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 use their property more uh, effectively. You know, if if you're not using the house, downsize, move along, or Airbnb it, or whatever. You know, get your mum to move in, or <laughs> whatever you need to do to to use those assets more effectively. That sort of tax does give give that incentive to do all of that. Um, so then going to the UBI, <clears throat> does that cause a similar pressure of, well, people have got this amount of money, so therefore they can cover this cost, and so that's my minimum cost? Do you, do you think that's going to... You mean for rent? Would it push for, up rent? Yeah, would it put a, push up rent if, if we were well, to get somebody for UBI? University yeah, University. under the current system, it would. Yeah, for sure. I mean... Yeah. Uh, that, and that's that's part of the problem with the with the current system. You can't you can't do these reforms in um, in uh, you in know silos. in yeah. one offs. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we saw that with the accommodation supplement, right? I mean, Labor brought in boosts to the accommodation supplement in um, in its first budget, and landlords said, "Yeah, thanks very much." Rents popped up by almost exactly the same amount. I mean, it was remarkable. It was remarkable that that. Uh, impact that the that that came through almost straight away. Um, I don't think we've ever seen such a blatant sign of the the market power in the rental industry in our in our biggest cities. Um, students get more money. We'll, we'll put up rents for for students by the same amount. And um, 
yeah i mean it's 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 pretty terrifying but that's that's because landlords are in this situation of having um such market power because the supply is so constrained so we do need it we do need to free up supply um and the tax reform is is part of that but we are going to propose a housing supply policy as well which which will you know free up um supply for housing particularly in in our uh inner city areas and um that has to be part of the solution because because then landlords don't have that ability to just um you know to say well the supply is basically fixed. The supply of housing is fixed in in this inner city. Your your willingness to pay has gone up by fifty bucks, so our rent goes up by fifty bucks. You know, that's yeah. um, that's that's really crap. <laughs> so, so how do we do it differently? The supply thing, because that's what's supposed to have happened this last two and a half years. Or how do we do that differently? <laughs> with, with, with Kiwi Build, you mean? Well, yeah. I mean the government government doesn't need to be putting on its Bob the Builder. <laughs> um tool belts uh, you know uh, there's there's stuff that government does and there's stuff that the private sector does the private sector is pretty good at building housing in general um if the as long as the government gets the the fundamentals right and i mean like i said we'll be um we'll be putting out a, a policy on that but you know you have to look at the you have to look at the resource management you know how how new developments get approved and the cost of doing that we have to look at the cost of building supplies which are 30 percent higher in new zealand than they are in australia and that's basically because we have a duopoly we have carters and fletchers um who've got us over a barrel uh, because they um you know effectively can influence government regulations and uh and because we have really crap competition laws in New Zealand gives them excessive market power. So the combination of factors there leading to building supplies being really expensive. Um, we, I mean, that, those are, those are big aspects of it. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a few other bits and pieces we need to, we need to reform, but uh, we'll be, we'll be putting out some, some views on that late this year or early next year. Nice, nice. Um, so, what something that I, I work in, and that's health, and that's where yeah uh, we've been connecting a little bit over Twitter, mostly via um, what Grant Scover is doing with Precure, and that's around trying to um, influence preventative medicine. And, and like you said before, none of the policies work in silos. So, when it comes to um, UBI and and having, you know. The people that are most at risk of poverty, those with children under five, having you know that weight off their shoulders for their children to go to daycare, so that they can um, earn an income, they can feed nourishing food, they can feel good about themselves, have great well-being. You know what? What would you love to see from our health sector? Which one's under the pump? And again, we rule out a, a medical school in Hamilton um, when we're crying out for rural doctors. It's like, oh, come on, come on. You know, is that something that? Tops keen on getting more getting more doctors keen on rural environments and you know there's lots lots to go. <laughs> well, I mean, we have to shift our entire medical system, you know, from from the hospital based model to a to a much more community based model. And you know the the 
the major parties have been talking about that again for a couple of decades and haven't really done anything to 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 put it in in place so yeah absolutely i mean um rural you know rural doctors are are a big part of that but i I would just say you know health needs to be much more community-based in general um people have to be thinking about you know thinking about and interacting with uh you know health on a day-to-day basis rather than um just when something goes wrong and when they when they're forced to go to the to the to the hospital um and there's all sorts of um there's all sorts of great tech that that's coming our way that we can that we can put in place in that regard but again none of that's going to matter much unless we have um a much greater you know, community workforce that can that can help people manage their own health, take responsibility for their for their own health, and understand what they can do to to, to prevent all these all these issues. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it's going to take a, a pretty massive cultural and and structural change, and it'll take um, it'll take a cultural change amongst the population too, because I think most people have just sort of got used to the idea of that, that they do whatever they like and, and um, you know, worry about it later on. And, um, and you know, if, uh, you know, with, with the sorts of stuff that, uh, that, that, that grants into on the, on the nutrition side, I mean, um, you know, people sort of get really antsy about being told what to eat you know say it's my choice and, and and all that sort of stuff well that's fine but but on the other side of that you can't then expect the the, the health system to pick up the you know, pick up the pieces if you're not prepared to take responsibility for your for your own health so we've got quite a big conversation to have as a as a nation there do we you know are we going to encourage people to um you know to, to to eat more healthily live more healthy lifestyles um and if we're not then how do we how do we get them to take responsibility for for that when when stuff goes wrong i mean that's historically been a a, a massive issue with things like smoking right um we, we we weren't able to get people to take responsibility for it we we couldn't refuse people treat, uh, treatment when they turned up to the ha- to the hospital with smoking problems, so that's when we started working on reducing smoking rates. Um, and and I think, you know, obesity is now overtaken, well, not obesity per se, but nutrition in general. Obesity is probably the biggest part of it, but nutrition in general has taken over mm-hmm. as the issue, the health issue of the twenty first century. It's bigger than smoking now in terms of impact. And we have to deal with that. I think I think the irony of what you said there about you know you can't tell me what to eat and all that sort of stuff. Well, actually, a lot of the what you do think is okay to eat and, and fun to eat is being told to you through through the media machine and the PR machine of of the food industry. So yeah, again, hard hard pill to swallow uh, when it comes to manipulating a population to be healthy and more productive. And yeah. I think the, the scary thing is, is when it comes to metabolic syndrome, it has the capacity to, to bankrupt not just us, but yeah. most Western countries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I listened to a. Um, I don't know if you've heard this, but it was 
gee, who was it? Oh, it was on Freakonomics Radio. Uh, I don't know if you're an avid podcast listener, but um, they did a they did a, a thing on agricultural subsidies and um, and where they came from and and the and the impact mod, you know the modern impact of agricultural subsidies. And anyway, it's a long story, but basically, all of these um, you know subsidies uh, came about for a variety of reasons, but as a result of them, they ended up with these stockpiles of, of, of wheat and corn. And that's when the nutrition guidelines, all of a sudden that, that pyramid appeared, which had the cereals at the bottom, you know, you know, the old, um, uh, the apocryphal, um, uh, nutrition guidelines, which say, you know, bread and, and all the cereals should be, should be eaten. <laughs> yeah, the, the most, and it's like actually the reason for that was because <laughs> they had stockpiles of it in the US, um, which is pretty damn insidious. Um, <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit like your margarine as well. Um, something to do yeah. with sewing machines and not having a use for the world anymore. So they yeah. made Crisco, and then we got margarine, and butter's bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty terrifying that that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, you, I mean, you are dealing with a, a whole bunch of um, misinformation out there. But I mean, generally speaking, we you know we we know what allows people to be healthy, and it's and it's fairly straightforward. And it and it the same stuff that works for mental health works for physical health too. And um, we need to get that across to people, you know? Yeah. And it, you bring up a good point there. And it's part of the reason for the success of, of what we're seeing with the likes of CrossFit and the likes of F45, that mental health and community health and environment is drives a lot of people, uh, both their accountability and to their um, sort of response to, to a good feeling, a good, good health and a good lifestyle. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the, you know, uh, and enduring, um, things about humans that I, I find morbidly fascinating is, is that, you know, over the past hundred years, we have had more choice than ever before. Uh, and yet we've chosen to use that, that freedom to, isolate ourselves more and more from other humans when that when that all the evidence shows that that's actually a major source of our happiness and well-being it's quite a it's, it's just quite a bizarre uh situation yeah. yeah and of course um the reason why we feel quite depressed about that is because if you buy yourself um from a historical perspective you're not in a very good place and um you should be motivated to get out of that funk i guess yeah yeah um, and speak, staying with the health, and it's something that I said I wanted to have a chat to you about. And, and I saw your sort of cannabis reform is more around um, alcohol reform, which I thought was quite a good good tactic. But something that is already available in somewhat a perspective. I think the only reason to write a prescription for CBD oil is for MS. But does you know is there any scope within top for greater research into you know a non psychoactive derivative of cannabis and hemp and, and, and CBD oil for helping a broader spectrum. I know talking to guys in Australia, they can prescribe it for chronic pain and, and for uh, migraines and, um, and Parkinson's, um, you know, is, 
is the com- I, I think the the key point is to have the conversation more nuanced and more open and and especially with the amount of evidence that's now compiling um is it is it time to have that conversation oh for sure and and this is a um this is a major reason why we actually back legalization because um you know what you see in um you know in in the united states uh, and and canada is that it's so hard to keep um your medical regulations and all that system up to date with with the the, the latest evidence and and what works and and what works for someone doesn't work for for for, for someone else um that in the end the a lot of these medicinal cannabis regimes just end up getting uh, you know abused if if they're effective they end up getting abused because because uh you know they they're, they're so liberal that that uh you know you can go along and say well i've got writer's cramp or a, or a, oh, i've got a got a headache and and that i need to get rid of so can you prescribe me some some cannabis and and it just becomes um, it just becomes a farce, you know. That's certainly what happened in California. Things things just got so farcical. I forgot what percentage of the population had had yeah. cannabis cards by the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, people. I think we just have to treat people with a with a a little bit of respect and like like they're adults. You know, I mean, cannabis is less harmful than alcohol by a long way. Um, it has all sorts of uh, benefits that we're only just starting to understand. Um, those, you know, benefits come from various balances of CBD and THC, and I understand that the science is is getting even more sophisticated than than simply talking about balances between CBD and THC as well. I'm not hugely up on that stuff, but that th- those sorts of uh, flavor noise i think people are talking about now yeah. anyway um <laughs> this is what i mean you know this this sort of stuff is is so incredibly sophisticated i i think we just need to trust people to work out what's what's best for them and and let them get on with it um when we're not talking about something that causes a a, a great deal of harm and in fact we're we're talking about re- reducing harm really by by regulating it Legalizing it, regulating and taxing it. Hmm. <coughs> and something further you guys are pushing the boundary of is, is genetic, you know, using genetics for, for positive good, you know, not, not you know, giving a, a rat, you know, uh, sterility, but, you know, just changing one or two things and, and yeah. creating a better, better world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the, so genetic modification has come a long way in the last um, you know, 15 to 20 years, we had a, we had a, um, Royal commission on it back in, in the early two thousands. And, you know, probably where they came to was, was, was broadly right. And that's how we got the situation we've, we've got now. Um, it has been implemented in a very risk averse way, but as the GM technology has developed, um, you know, we we think of we think of genetic modification as taking genes from one thing and shoving it in another one. You know, like a um, 
taking carrot genes and putting them in a sheep to make an orange sheep or something. Um, <laughs> Sprinkling genes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that still that sort of stuff. Yes, it it, it does happen, but um, the the more the, the gene editing stuff is far more sophisticated than that. And it's and it's really just talking about going into an existing gene and just tweaking things. You know, turning genes on and off um, in the same way that that natural selection or or selective breeding does. Um, you know, to, to accentuate certain characteristics. You know, this is how through thousands of years we've developed, um, you know, the different breeds of dog that we have or, or um, you know, the different breeds of, of cow that we have um, that, you know, produce different kinds of milk and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and really what gene editing is saying is, well, we face a huge number of challenges with climate change, with freshwater problems with Cody dieback, that sort of stuff, predator-free, as you already mentioned. And can we just use this idea of selective breeding um, but speed it up through, you know, through this, through this gene editing tool to sort of say, well, uh, we just want to select for, for this characteristic, so we're just going to turn this gene on. Um, and, you know, it's a hell of a lot safer than, than you know, the old type of genetic modification taking one thing shoving it in another which like i said generally speaking i think we've you know we, we've managed that in a in a pretty reasonable slightly risk averse way but that's probably fair enough but this new technology um is is incredibly safe you know the the the, the issue you know the the um the issues with it are, are no no greater than any form of selective breeding that we already carry out it's just a hell of a lot faster and and allows us to, to to deal with these challenges yeah and so do you think as a country whilst there might not be the need for it right now but um you know we're just in hawks bay with they stopped the rotana for dam um do you think that there's a discussion to be had about nuclear power as well or, or do you think that we'll stay with renewables till the end of the end of new zealand <laughs> <laughs> um i've i've talked to uh, and you know I, I think we i think we have to be open to this conversation going forward um but i've talked to um quite a number of people about um you know about the issue of of nuclear power uh and it doesn't doesn't really fit new zealand's power demand profile at the moment um, because it does play a similar role in a, in a system as, as hydro does. Um, you know, if, if these hydro dams eventually, you know, need to be uh, re replaced or, or, or decommissioned and, you know, and we need to replace them, then, then perhaps that'll then become a conversation for us. But right now it's, it, it isn't um and certainly you know i i don't think um i don't think we should be allergic to nuclear power just because it's it's nuclear power you know we have a, a bigger challenge now in in climate change to take care of but yeah I, I, I don't i don't see us having that conversation short term just because of the um because of the the power profile that we de demand that we have mm. yeah no that's um I think I think uh, it's 
baby steps when it comes to a lot of these things. And just for a start, having a conversation is, is the tough part. Um, as sort of top, you guys are quite keen on the information and, and having case, case examples to, to back up what you're talking about. Yeah. How, how do you then sort of look, look at, you know, um, you, we've got sort of two extremes of government making a lot of noise and we've got ACT and versus Greens quite a lot of the time. And, you know, it's lots of you know, investigation, lots of committees, lots of um, government departments versus just let it all work out for itself and leave us alone to get on with it. <laughs> Where does top sort of stand in that sort of government for government's sake well, versus the, the private market for, I don't know, productiveness stakeholders? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a horses for, for courses. Um, the, the, the answer is horses for courses, you know, and it's a matter of what works. And, you know, you look at different industries, the, the, the private sector does well, uh, and, and in others it, it completely fails. I mean, I think, I think largely the, the approach of having a public sector, you know, public health sector is, is broadly right. Um, same with same with education. You know, I I, I don't see um, any massive need to you know to challenge those um, to challenge those uh, aspects. I mean, I think what I what I would say, and I don't want to sound you know, this this might start start sounding Tony Blair by talking about a third way, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I I this isn't what Tony Blair was really was really talking about with the third way, but. I think the the really big future for New Zealand um, that we that we don't do a lot of and we and we should do more is actually bringing in the the, the community sector. We government does a lot in New Zealand, hmm. and um, that doesn't necessarily need to be that way. Um, and actually, when you look at the the undertakings we made with uh, the Treaty of Waitangi, um, you know, the the increasing calls for rangatiratanga, um, that really lends itself to a conversation about devolving responsibility too, De devolving responsibility to to community groups, to iwi, to to, to local councils, that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I think you know, as we've discussed, I think uh, health should be you know, health should be much more located in the community. I think in particular mental health is, is something that should be um, embedded in the community uh, a lot more because there isn't actually great evidence on what works to improve people's mental health. Um, the one thing that that is clear from the evidence is that different things work in different areas. And that's because of all that stuff we talked about before it's all about getting people to do the, the basics that we all know. The hard part is actually getting people to do that stuff, right? And so actually different, you know, in some areas it might be a CrossFit group like you, like you mentioned. In some areas it might be a um, kapahaka group that gets people exercising and interacting with other people and proud of their identity and spending time in nature and eating better and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there's been some great great work done with church groups in South Auckland about nutrition. All all, all that sort of stuff is um, is you know I, I think 
what works in different places is, is, is going to be different. Um, the other example I'd give of that that I can really see is around housing. So we have a incredibly centralised social housing model in New Zealand with Housing New Zealand. We have a few fledgling community housing organisations. We have some iwi dabbling in, in providing housing. Um, and, but what you see overseas is a much bigger role for the community housing sector. So these are charities, local groups that provide housing for particular communities. And they provide a variety of housing too, because you know you kind of have so social housing here and owner-occupied housing here, then you have renting in the middle. But then there's kind of this all, uh, you know, all this all this grey area around affordable housing and all that sort of stuff. A lot of room for innovation in there, and um, and for a lot of different communities to deliver things in in, in different ways. Um, so I think. I think there's huge scope in New Zealand for encouraging the community housing sector to to innovate in that space and provide some some you know different tenures and and, and different affordable housing options. Okay, that's uh, revolution, a third way of doing things. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, um, you rebranded. Where do where do people find Top? Uh, Top.org.nz is the website. Um, Facebook. Uh, dot com forward slash top nz is the facebook page that's where you'll find a lot of um uh you know a lot of stuff that we're up to uh we're on instagram we're on twitter we're on um youtube uh do quite we do quite a lot of stuff on 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 youtube um because you know video is the thing these days mm. and uh and you know it's it's Really, social is is the uh, is is massive for us. Social media, because um, oh, and and we do have um, you know regional coordinators. We have people in most regions of the country. If you want to get in touch and and um, you know meet people in real life and talk about these sorts of issues, um, we we have people all around the country that are um, that are organising events like that uh, and and hosting events like that. Um, so again, you can you can find that out through getting in touch on 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 social media or or through our website. Um, yeah, you know we're we're building that team for for twenty twenty, and but really it it is you know it's a movement. It, the, the whole idea is that this you know top is now um, one hundred percent funded by um, our our uh, small donors, our you know our supporters. And you know, ninety-nine percent of the work is done by our dedicated and talented group of volunteers. So we really are a movement. And um, uh, you know, if, uh, if if people want to get involved, then uh, all hands on deck. We you know, we we definitely need to to uh, show that you know people really want fundamental change. Mm. And uh, if they're looking at Follow you, uh, just the Twitter handle? Twitter, uh, Jeff Simmons, um, yeah. and uh, you know, Facebook's, Facebook's the same, Instagram's the same. So it's, it's Jeff Simmons, but with a Z at the end. So G-E-O-F-F-S-I-M-M-O-N-Z. Um, yeah. yeah, and I'm on most of the, most of the, uh, the socials. Not not Snapchat yet though. I have <laughs> <laughs> my head around that. 
Chuck, chuck some filters through through your face, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, good, mate. So um, thank you so much for your time. I, I can imagine it's, it's been a busy one, uh, especially with relaunching last Thursday. What would you like to leave people with? It's maybe a thought that hasn't done you any, any damage or, or something that you'd like people to consider and take forward? Oh, look, I mean, yeah, the the thing that I've been thinking about most lately is is really um, because we're focusing on fundamental change, you know, the most common response you get to that is, oh, you know, people don't, oh, I don't like change. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I mean, ultimately, um, the, that's what the, the majority of the population is like, which is why we're in the, in the pickle we're in right now. Um, and my response to them is, you know, if you, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. It's, uh, <laughs> this, the stuff that Top's talking about is coming down the pipeline and it's going to hit us for better or for worse. So better to front foot it. Absolutely. I love it, mate. We'll uh, push yeah. it up there and, and thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. Fantastic way to finish. And as someone from Invercargill, I know very well about the uh, conservative nature of New Zealand, but doesn't that hit home? If you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's lots of areas in our life where that statement can apply. Um, and hmm, pace to have a bit of an open mind and keep learning as we always talk about on the stagger or anyway that's episode 99 for us check out tops uh, media their website's super cool i was checking that out the other night um, a lot on there to take on board i love their little uh, policy in a minute they've got a number of blogs as well so it's easy to really understand where they're coming from what it's about the way they've thought about certain issues so yeah really cool head over to their website of course just go to the show notes um, those links that Jeff talked about, they're all there, so you can go where you like, as well as uh, check out all of my links, my social handles, just go into the show notes of whatever app you're in, and check it out, or into the show notes of YouTube, if you're going to head over there and watch, um, although it's probably not much point if you've listened this far, uh, if you have listened this far, thank you so much, and thanks so much to everybody that is jumping on board, uh, it's cool to see, especially the New Zealand market growing, and the Aussies as well, they're pushing on, pushing down the US. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you could do us a favor, leave us a rating on iTunes or, or whatever app you're on. Leave us a review as well. And of course, the podcast brought to you by Waikito, W-A-I-K-E-T-Zero.ProveItNow.com. Exogenous ketones. Uh, get them delivered to your door, especially if you're in one of those open markets of US, Canada, um. Australia. That's my daughter. Um, East Asia. If you're a Kiwi, hit me up on at Stagroar on Instagram or the Waikito Facebook page. Yeah, the yum, 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 aren't they? <laughs> um, the, you can check out all the previous episodes on those two pages at the Stagroar and, and Waikito on Facebook. This is great content. Anyway, that's enough from episode 99. Thanks for joining us and we'll be back for the big one, the big ton. The century will raise the bat for episode 100 coming soon. See you later.